0: Listen, political gerrymandering is probably one of the greatest threats to our democracy right now. Oh, add it to the list. It's a long list. Yes, it is. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left me, to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yes, I am From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles This is the Bradcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Also in California In Red Bluff and Redding On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN And Eureka's KGOE Up in Oregon on the Central Coast On KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, And Eugene's KEPW Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Halenville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me... From bradblog.com, and I've got something to get off my chest, because this is just getting ridiculous at this point, Desi Doyen. Okay. A few weeks ago, we reported on the misreported inflation numbers from October. Remember that? Oh, yes. Many outlets were falsely suggesting misleading readers and viewers to believe that inflation had somehow spiked an incredible 6.2% in the month of October which, if true, really would have been a scary inflation number. But, in fact, inflation had gone up just 0.09% that month. The 6.2% number, in fact, was total inflation over the past year from the depths of the COVID pandemic economic plunge into a full year uh, later, When it was 6.2% as folks started to emerge from the pandemic to buy stuff again after a year or so of lockdowns and job losses and recovery and still broken supply chains that came with the expected disruptions of all of the above. But that misleading inflation number misreported by a whole bunch of corporate media outlets at the time many of whom have a number of incentives, frankly, to do just that, as we discussed at the time with The Intercept's John Schwartz on this program before the holiday break. You can download it at bradblog.com if you missed it. Those reports sparked uh, a bit of an e- economic panic at the time, a, a temporary price plunge on Wall Street, and a lot of political opportunism in Congress and at right-wing media outlets, naturally. Corporate media outlets uh, routinely trumpet bad economic data, especially of late, it seems. will get to that in a moment. While ignoring the much larger signs of a robust, much faster-than-anyone-predicted economic recovery, as the nation and the world struggle to crawl out from under the pandemic. So as we recently noted, for example, there was very little coverage just last week when the number of those applying for unemployment for the first time had plunged to a 50-year low. New new weekly jobless claims came in at just 199,000 Uh, applications nationwide. That number has not been that low since 1969, which you would think would be something to celebrate. Or at least talk about. Yet that encouraging statistic got next to no coverage as opposed to the misreported inflation number a few weeks earlier. And as we saw again on Friday, though it should be little surprise by now, a new number out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that sent Wall Street tumbling On Friday, and news outlets and Republicans declaring that it is all but over for poor Joe Biden at this point. As Friday morning's headlines blared, uh, employers added just 210,000 jobs in November, the weakest monthly gain in nearly a year, wrote AP. NBC News, economy added 210,000 jobs in November, far below expectations, indicating troubled labor market recovery. New York Times said U.S. employers added 210,000 jobs in November, a slowdown that shows companies were growing cautious even before the Omicron variant emerged. CNN said disappointing jobs report. The U.S. economy added 210,000 jobs in November, far fewer than expected as the economy continues to recover from pandemic-inflicted damage. And Washington Post U.S. economy added 210,000 jobs in November, reflecting continued headwinds in the recovery. Those all came to me. Those alerts all came to me before I even woke up today. They came as alerts on my iPhone. Terrifying. But what's the real story? Well, none of those alerts told me this, which I only learned once clicking beyond the AP's headline to their actual coverage, which, uh, as you know, many folks do not do at all. America's unemployment rate tumbled last month to its lowest point since the pandemic struck, even as employers appeared to slow their hiring. A mixed picture that pointed to a resilient economy that's putting more people to work. The government reported Friday that businesses and other employers added just 210,000 jobs in November, the weakest monthly gain in nearly a year and less than half of October's increase of 546,000. I'll get to those numbers in a moment. But AP continues, other data from the Labor Department's report painted a brighter picture. The unemployment rate plummeted from 4.6% to 4.2%. As a substantial 1.1 million Americans said they found jobs last month, last month, last month alone, 1.1 million people went back to work. They go on. The U.S. economy still remains under threat from a spike in inflation, shortages of labor and supplies and the potential impact of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. But for now, Americans are spending freely and the economy is forecast to expand at a 7 percent annual rate in the final three months of the year. That's huge. That is. They describe a sharp rebound from the 2.1 percent pace In the previous quarter, when the Delta variant hobbled growth. Now, over at the New York Times, their Upshot columnist, Neil Irwin, also found it necessary to write. A a completely separate article as sort of a corrective to the New York Times main report on Friday's numbers after, you'll recall, they blared earlier U.S. employers added 210,000 jobs, a slowdown that shows companies were growing cautious even before the Omicron variant emerged. You know, one of the headlines that sent the stock market plummeting again on Friday in response. So as Irwin writes... Everything in the November jobs numbers Friday was good, except for the number that usually gets the most attention. The 210,000 jobs that U.S. employers added last month was far below analyst expectations, but most of the other evidence in the report points to a job market that is humming. Most notably, the jobless rate fell to 4.2 percent from 4.6 percent, a remarkable swing in one single month, he writes. The speed with which unemployment has gone from a grave crisis to a benign situation is astounding, he writes. Unemployment was 6.7 percent last December. In one year, he notes, we've experienced an improvement that took three and a half years in the last economic cycle in, from uh, March of 2014 to September of 2017. Sometimes a falling unemployment rate is driven by a pernicious trend. People drop out of the labor force. The opposite, he notes, was true in November. The survey of American households on which the data is based showed uniformly positive signs the number of people working was up by 1.1 million, while the number of adults not in the labor force, neither working nor looking for work, fell by nearly half a million Even the disappointing number on job creation, writes Irwin, derived from a separate survey of employers, has some silver linings. For one, it was accompanied by positive revisions to September and October job growth numbers. Revisions have been uncommonly large, he notes, and mostly in a positive direction in recent months, reflecting challenges collecting data in a pandemic economy. Which is the other point that I want to touch on in a second, but after running through a whole bunch of other very good signs that the economy is growing at a surprisingly robust rate as unemployment is dropping to record lows, Irwin concludes ultimately this has been a speedy labor market recovery and one that appears to have more room to run. Policymakers have every reason to take the win and continue adjusting to that reality. Yes, They do, but not unless the American public and those policymakers actually understand that reality. Now, I'm not an economist nor an economic journalist, but I have learned this much over the past several months regarding these monthly new jobs numbers. And it is remarkable to me that the folks writing for these uh, corporate, you know, who are sending out these corporate media headlines and alerts scaring the hell out of everyone, that they do not appear to have figured this out themselves by now, or maybe for whatever reason, they just don't want to. But on the point of these continuously revised numbers from previous months, Philip Bump, Again, another analyst uh, columnist here, this time writing his corrective over at Washington Post in response to their news item, remember, which triggered the morning alert about continuing headwinds. Uh, He notes the country added only 210,000 jobs in November, well below expectations. But in 2021, the anodyne qualifier that the numbers are subject to revision is more important than ever. The odds are good, he says, that the November total is being underreported, as has happened nearly every single month this year. It happened in the November job report as well. Yes, the top line number of 210,000 jobs wasn't what economists or Democrats hoped to see, but there was also upward revisions to their September and October job numbers. The change to the September number is the second revision. The first increased the initial estimate for September by 110, I'm sorry, 118,000 jobs. In other words, he notes the September jobs total was increased by 185,000 in total since it was initially reported as 194,000 originally. It has almost doubled since that initial report That was described at the time as, quote, disappointing (laughs) by all of these same sources. That has happened repeatedly this year. Uh, Josh Marshall summarizes it this way with the headline, Shouldn't we have learned this about the BLS numbers? He writes, We have a mere 210,000 new jobs in November, according to the statistics released this morning by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But we should expect that number is actually much higher, probably dramatically higher. So far this year, he notes, every month but one has been revised after the fact, often by magnitudes far greater than in the history of counting this number. September, he notes, was initially 194,000. Now it's revised to 379,000 for September. August was 235,000. Now it's revised to 483,000. All of these are almost double. More than that. one is more than double. Uh, A number of other months, he notes, have been upward uh, revised by 100,000 or more. Cumulatively, he says, there's now just... uh, they are now just shy of one million new jobs created this year that were not reported in the initial first Friday of each month reporting these unprecedented discrepancies uh, he notes must derive from a combination of the unique nature of the comeback from the from uh, the COVID-induced recession and the way that COVID has impacted how the data is collected. He says it's not like the BLS has suddenly gotten really bad at what it does. It's not a big deal if it takes a month or so longer to get the numbers just right, but it certainly has a big impact on perceptions of the economy, he observes. That is the case with the public at large, as well as political and economic debates in this country. And what we have seen is that the later revisions barely seep into the public dialogue. So it's a big problem politically for Democrats and for the public mood generally. He is absolutely right. Blogger Eldwood, uh, Elwood Dodd over at Daily Coast on Friday morning wrote... Maybe it's got something to do with COVID. Maybe it's a shift to job sectors with different reporting characteristics. Nobody thinks it's BLS getting lazy or political, but for whatever reason, today they are unable to produce a reliable number for employment one week after the month ends. So don't, he writes. Mm. Release the number a month later when well, you have it. Yes, when the right it's number. much more accurate. Exactly. He says uh he writes to Secretary Marty Walsh, he's the Labor Department chief. It's your department and your job fix the process, give us credible numbers. And I agree. This clearly matters. Uh, you know, again, the stock market plummeted on Friday in response to these numbers. When, in fact, if you look at the full numbers, it's a really good economic report overall. And the only part of it that's not good is likely to be revised up in the next uh, you know month or so. So, yeah, this is uh, getting kind of insane. And I just I had to get that off my chest. This, you know, it obviously matters uh, because along with all of these numbers, You can track it directly with uh, Joe Biden's falling approval numbers at the same time. Bingo. Anyway, uh, more on all of that in the days ahead, I suspect, as I got a guest standing by to discuss something else entirely. But I I just wanted to get that off my chest. It's uh, becoming a very troubling pattern that I seem to recognize. I don't understand why the corporate media doesn't, but it does have very real consequences, as, uh, as Josh wrote. Uh, you know, describing it as a big problem politically for Democrats and the public mood generally. And to that end, another big problem politically for Democrats and for the public in general is our next topic extreme partisan gerrymandering at the state level, which is getting much, much worse in recent days, particularly in Republican states, gaming new congressional maps. For the next 10 years following the 2020 census, but with the GOP's corrupted Supreme Court now claiming it is not their role to take sides on such matters, what can both small and large D Democrats do about it? Well, we've got a few ideas coming up, though none of them are terrific. Anyway, that's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As Politico notes on its latest 2021 congressional redistricting page, so far in states with finalized maps following the 2020 census, maps that will be in effect for Congress for the next 10 years of congressional elections, state lawmakers have drawn maps with 52 so-called strong Biden districts, 25 competitive districts, and 84 so-called strong trump districts 84 trump districts to 52 biden districts so far in a nation where joe biden defeated donald trump by seven million votes just one year ago in 2020 and where democrats won a majority of seats in the u.s house at least under the previous congressional maps drawn after the 2010 u.s census In recent weeks, we have been noting on this program a number of GOP states as their legislatures have been redistricting their new maps, such as Texas, where in October, as Mother Jones voting rights champion Ari Berman noted at the time, the Texas legislature passed extreme gerrymandered U.S. house maps where whites, who comprise 40 percent of the population in the state, would control 60 percent. ...of districts. Latinos who comprise 39% of the population, just a little bit less than whites, well, those Latinos with 39% of the population would control just 18% of districts, compared to the 60% controlled by whites. Things get worse, however, for black voters. They make up 12% of the population in Texas. They would enjoy majority control in 0% of the districts in the state, and Asians who are 5% of the population, would similarly control 0% of districts in the Lone Star State. That, even though Texas will be adding two new congressional seats this year, thanks almost entirely to the growth in their minority Hispanic and black populations. As Berman noted back in October, 95% of population growth in Texas was from communities of color, But uh, GOP state legislative and House maps increase the number of white districts and decrease the number of Latino and black districts. Something is very amiss here. And of course, Texas is not the only such GOP controlled state. Similarly, warping the idea of democracy by drawing maps, allowing legislatures to select their own voters rather than voters select their own legislators. As author and University of Kentucky law professor Joshua A. Douglas explained recently at Politico, the latest redistricting cycle where states redraw all congressional and state legislative maps in light of new census data is well underway. It hasn't been pretty, he writes, at least if you care about fair representation, where voters determine who wins as opposed to how maps are drawn. It's already become clear, he argues, that increasingly partisan state legislatures cannot be trusted to draw fair maps. And the U.S. Supreme Court, given a chance to intervene a year or two ago, made things worse by completely washing its hands of the issue. That, when they declared that federal courts have no say whatsoever in how states decide to redistrict their own congressional or state legislative maps... That ruling, along with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act back in 2013, is now given free reign, at least as far as the federal courts are concerned, to, uh, well, to states to gerrymander to their heart's content. And boy, howdy, have they been doing so of late, particularly in Republican-controlled states where, according to experts, new extreme partisan gerrymanders being enacted right now would result in a Republican takeover of Congress in 2022, even if Americans voted exactly as they did in 2020, when seven million more voters selected a Democratic president and when five million more voters voted for Democratic Congressional House candidates than they did for Republican House candidates. Again, with the newly redistricting maps, being drawn in GOP states around the country, if everyone in the nation voted exactly the same way in 2022 as they did in 2020, Republicans would take over the majority in the House of Representatives, which does not sound a hell of a lot like a healthy, small-D Democratic nation to me. As Josh Douglas also observes at Politico Congress at the moment, does not seem likely to step in to set uniform rules that prevent the worst abuses, worst abuses of redistricting, at least unless and until Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema agree to a carve out for the Senate filibuster to allow democracy reforms like the Freedom to Vote Act, which would end partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore the need for preclearance by the Department of Justice or federal court before an overly racialized gerrymander could be enacted. So, Douglas asks, where is the solution going to lie? Here to answer that question is Josh Douglas, he joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the broadcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So if the U.S. Supreme Court wants nothing to do anymore, the corrupted U.S. Supreme Court with partisan gerrymandering by the states, and if the Senate Democrats are unable to reform the filibuster to pass federal legislation to bar partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, what is the solution to this problem? Before it undoes this constitutional Democratic Republic entirely. Joshua A. Douglas wrote about exactly that at Politico this week. Josh teaches election law, voting rights, constitutional law and judicial decision making at University of Kentucky's J. David Rosenberg College of Law. Professor Douglas has written for many of the top legal journals in the nation and a whole bunch of media outlets, including of late both Politico and CNN. And his latest book is Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Oh, Professor, it has been well over a year now, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
1: Hey Brad, it's always good to chat with you.
0: Delightful to have you here, my friend. Uh, first, you heard my uh, intro in the previous segment. Do you concur with that with that point that I cited from the uh, from the other experts that if Americans vote in 2022 the way they did in 2020? with these new maps currently being drawn up around the country particularly in republican controlled states though not solely that the GOP would win the majority in the house next year even after receiving fewer votes for its candidates than for the democratic ones
1: well i'm going to have to rely on the on the experts who study the kind of nitty-gritty details of the maps and mm-hmm. the political performance but it sure seems likely that gerrymandering could have a major impact on who's able to control both Congress and state legislatures mm-hmm. as well, which is, you know, as if not even more concerning.
0: And and that, by the way, is already the case in the upper chamber in Congress, as you know, in the Senate, uh, where I believe Republican senators represent 40 million fewer Citizens than do elected Democratic senators, and yet the chamber is currently uh, all but a 50-50 deadlock uh, as far as the partisan representation uh, of senators. Uh, before we get to your proposed solution for the gerrymanders going on uh, in the states, how can how can the U.S. continue to represent to the world? That we're actually a representative democracy at this point, you know, with the gaming of the House, the gaming of the Senate, which is sort of baked into the into the Constitution. And that's before we even discuss the distortion of the Electoral College or the fact that, you know, five of nine Supreme Court justices, I believe, were appointed by Republican presidents who did not win a majority of votes when they were elected. How can we sell the case to the world that we're a democracy at all here, Josh?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think that's right. If we think of democracy as simply the majority should rule, which of course is, you know, what the, one of the main concepts of it is. But, you know, we have to also remember our history as a country and our founding, which never intended representatives to solely be about majority rule. And, you know, this is a lot because the southern states that wanted to protect the institution of slavery uh, wanted to have outsized power in this new government and refused to join in. So a lot of the problems that we have today uh, with respect to representation are a legacy of... That very notion, that mm-hmm. legacy of the very notion that you know representativeness based on majority rule is not the sole thing that we uh, were created to achieve.
0: Well, we certainly haven't achieved it, but it's troubling how it's really every single branch uh, of the government at this point—legislative, executive, and uh, and and uh, judicial—and uh, to- and what you point out is yeah. that it's gotten
1: worse, yeah. right? Because yeah. You know, it was thought to be that the House of Representatives would be the the people's house, mm-hmm. the, the body that would represent a majority of the people and be a check on some of these other institutions that might give outsized weight to... You know, the smaller states, the rural states, Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, in in the pre-Civil War era, the states that were uh, trying to protect slavery. Um, But now with sophisticated computers and algorithms where we can predict with such accuracy how people are going to vote, the House has become completely out of whack and such Mm -hmm. that, you know, Democrats need to win a lot more than 50% plus one to be able to gain uh, a majority in that chamber.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it seemed clear. Clear that the the founders must have realized that that could happen in the Senate. It doesn't seem that they uh, you know foresaw that that would occur in the house it's it's uh, it, it is very difficult to make the case. it has changed uh, over the past 250 years to become more and more of a minority rule in this country it seems and uh, to that end you know two years ago the Republicans, Packed and stolen U.S. Supreme Court washed their hands pretty much of all matters related to state redistricting issues, which uh, it sort of reminded me, Joshua, this week of, of, of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's suggestion that, you know, maybe the Supreme Court should become neutral on the matter of the long-standing legal precedent that women have a constitutionally protected right to an abortion, you know, where, quote, unquote, staying neutral isn't really staying neutral at all since it hands the decision of a very basic right to liberty and privacy to partisan state officials. This occurred to me uh, as I was thinking about what the what the same court did when it came to redistricting under under what premise did the Supremes decide that federal courts should essentially stay neutral? that they should have no say over the right to fair representation in congress when you know when they became neutral on the matter of gerrymandering
1: well the theory is that the court can't come up with a standard to measure when politics has gone too far mm-hmm. in the redistricting process and you know i think one thing this demonstrates is a fallacy in my view that some politics is okay in redistricting that because we're going to leave it to state legislatures to draw the maps and the US Constitution says that legislatures of the states can dictate the times places and manner of running elections which includes drawing maps that since state bodies are going to do this and by nature they are uh, partisan right mm-hmm. they're elected in partisan uh races that some politics is okay, and it's not up to a judge to figure out how much is too much. And what? you know, contrast that with the redistricting rule that districts have to be roughly the same population, mm-hmm. right, the, the to elect someone to the legislature to take roughly the same number of people to get a majority in that district, known as the one-person, one-vote principle or equal population. Well, the court has said, well, judges can measure that, because it's math, it's fairly fairly simple. Uh, math to figure mm-hmm. out if the districts are equal size, but according to the majority, there's no standard. There's no easy way to figure out when politics has gone too far. Now I think that's completely backwards, and there's surely standards out there. Tons of people have suggested them, mm-hmm. including the dissenters uh, in that case. But that was the majority's rationale,
0: and and which leads me to, uh, well, leads me to my challenge of your premise in Politico. Let's get to that premise. So what this is I. guess your alternative to the supreme court uh, you know adjudicating these things so what is that alternative as you explained at uh, at politico last week
1: so i think state courts have a role to play in policing partisan gerrymandering now let me be clear that this is not the ideal solution i think Mm -hmm. the u.s supreme court should have done its job, done Mm -hmm. its responsibility of staying, upholding democracy and and coming up with a standard or or adopting one of the standards that had been suggested. But since the court's not going to do so, we at least do have state courts. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing about state courts is that they would rely on their state constitutions and state constitutions go beyond the U.S. Constitution in protecting the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Forty-nine of the 50 state constitutions say something like, every citizen or every person in the state shall be a qualified voter. The only one that doesn't is Arizona's, and their courts have interpreted their constitution as also conferring the right to vote. And over half of the states have a clause that says that elections shall be free free and equal or free and open. And so my argument is that state courts should robustly use these phrases Mm -hmm. to protect democracy and to throw out maps that are so skewed that the maps don't represent a fair democracy, a fair majoritarian rule, but instead keep uh, the party in power to stay in power, to entrench them in power, just because of the way the lines are drawn.
0: Which I think may answer the the, the challenge that I have, which is basically, you know, the federal courts, the Supreme Court threw up hands sand, said, oh, courts can't figure this out. And I guess the question is, well, if courts can't figure this out, why, if federal courts can't figure this out, why is a state court in any better shape to do so? And what you're saying is that they have more tools, essentially, because there are more tools in state constitutions than are actually written into the uh, into the federal uh, the U.S. Constitution.
1: Well, I, first, I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court said courts can't figure this out. The five justices in the majority said we're not going to figure okay. this out. right. right so, right. so it's, it's not for a lack of tools. Um, it's for a lack of of will.
0: Will. Um, yeah.
1: th- that said, there's a legal hook. For state courts to go beyond what the U.S. Supreme Court did and Mm -hmm. go beyond what's protected within the U.S. Constitution, which does not explicitly confer the right to vote. The the U.S. Supreme Court has protected it under the Equal Protection Clause. But state constitutions have an explicit textual hook. So, Mm -hmm. look, for judges who are textualists, And, you know, only want to look at the pure text of the Constitution, well, there you have it in Mm -hmm. the state constitutions to rely upon. And so, yes, state judges do have more tools that they can rely on beyond what the U.S. Supreme Court was willing to do.
0: And don't even get me started on those uh, fake textualist justices like the late Antonin Scalia, who insisted he was a textualist. But then, you know, when the Constitution says that the uh, Congress shall make the laws that would enforce the, you know, amendments like the 15th Amendment and so forth, the right to uh, the the, the post-Civil War uh, amendments uh, for the right to vote. Oh, even though Congress comes in and enforces that right with the voting rights law, he says, oh, Congress has no say in this. Don't even get me started. But I take your point. Here's a concern, however. Aren't many of those state Supreme Courts also the product of political gerrymandering either via you know state elections for Supreme Court justices or partisan governors and uh, legislatures who seat those uh, state Supreme Court justices?
1: I think that's right but, but not as extreme as uh, some of the state legislatures themselves. You know, and also, in theory, judges are supposed to be impartial, right? They're not supposed to be wearing their partisan hats. Now, I think if you get to some states like Wisconsin, uh, what we've seen from the mm-hmm. Wisconsin Supreme Court, it's it's hard to say that with a straight face. Which is exactly
0: um, when you made that case, I thought, well, what about Wisconsin? Yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: but, but, but you know, if we're looking for a solution to a, a situation that is untenable for democracy, yeah. at least here's one that we've seen some success. And then mm-hmm. I guess that's the other reason why I think state courts uh, can be useful places to look, is that in uh, just a couple years ago, both the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and the North Carolina Supreme Court relied on their state constitutions to strike down gerrymandered maps in those states. And other state, uh, other state uh, Supreme Courts, rather, have relied on their state constitutions for other democracy mm-hmm. uh, decisions, other issues involving the right to vote. So we have some precedent that is favorable to using these state constitutions robustly.
0: You write at Politico that voting rights activists, including Democrats who generally are faring worse in these gerrymandered maps, uh, will need to bring lawsuits against the maps in state courts invoking the protections embedded within the state constitution and i think a lot of my a, a lot of folks uh, uh josh in, including myself frankly have sort of been assuming that's already the case are these maps not being challenged in state courts already
1: some of them are but there's also still been a lot of focus on federal court litigation uh-huh. um, which you know it's not bad or not wrong. You can have dual litigation in both the federal and state courts. But I have to admit that I was a little surprised that the level of activity within the state courts um, has not been extremely robust, as at least as of when I wrote that piece uh, a week or so ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that uh, I, I recently saw that maps were challenged in Ohio mm-hmm. in the state courts there. I believe there's some litigation in Louisiana uh, at the state court level, But I guess I was just a little surprised that um, there still seems to be a lot of focus on federal court litigation and Voting Rights Act litigation, which, again, is great uh, to try to use those tools but I think there hasn't been enough in state courts making the argument that I'm making. Although, I, again, we are starting to see a little bit of an uptick even since that piece was uh, published.
0: So uh, those those cases being brought in, in federal courts or being brought under the Voting Rights Act, what's, what's left remaining of it, basically uh, challenging on racial grounds, which I guess is still allowable in federal courts, but on political grounds that's sort of where the Supreme Court threw up its hands. But Uh, just to make sure here if a state supreme court if, if these challenges are broad and i think they should be brought in every state if a state supreme court finds that under its own state constitution a particular map is unconstitutional for any particular reason can the u.s supreme court then be brought back in to the issue to overrule the state Supreme Court, or have their previous rulings uh, held that they now have no such say over over these uh, state rulings uh, regarding congressional and legislative maps
1: so this becomes a little tricky for state legislative maps the state supreme court 's ruling would be the final say uh, there 's nothing that i 'm aware of that would give the u s Supreme Court any hook or jurisdiction to uh, overrule a state Supreme Court's ruling about a state legislative map. Mm-hmm. However, for congressional maps, there's an argument that some people have tried to mm-hmm. make. This is the so-called independent state legislature doctrine, mm-hmm. which says that uh, state legislatures have the absolute authority, and no one can question them, to regulate federal elections. Right. This comes from the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. There are four justices who uh, invoked that doctrine in the litigation leading up to the November 2020 election, the Mm -hmm. the pandemic election litigation. Um, And the fifth, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, had espoused it in a 2015 case in Mm -hmm. dissent. And then we don't know what Justice Barrett thinks. So there could be five votes. For this ridiculous notion that state constitutions can't bind a state legislature when regulating federal elections.
0: <laughs> well, you call it ridiculous, but the fact is, as you say, there's four, uh, four or five already on record. Citing the Constitution, which, you know, does say that legislators decide the, the, the manner of, of, you know, the way elections should be run. Uh, and the argument, and this is what we heard after the 2020 election by these far right so-called stop the steal folks. You know, only all on, that means only state legislatures, according to the U.S. Constitution, not governors, not secretaries of state, not even state courts may determine anything. That has to do with the way that elections are carried out in states. That's the argument that many on the right are still using to, you know, to claim the 2020 election was unlawful because secretaries of state and governors, even courts, had changed the rules, uh, you know, to account for safely voting during the pandemic via mail, etc. You know, I've heard a lot of folks like you and others call it ridiculous, and I kind of agree with you that it is, but. The people making the argument don't feel that way, and a, a you know a near majority on the U.S. Supreme Court have agreed as much, which would allow them to come in and say, "Nope." State courts, who uh, supreme courts who've overruled a state legislature's maps, have no say in it. That's a pretty scary, but a very real prospect, Joshua. I
1: think it is. It is a possibility. Here's what I'll say: Yeah, um, is that. Although I certainly expect the Supreme Court to rule on this doctrine sometime in the near future, mm-hmm. I guess I would be a little surprised at the justices doing it to overturn a state Supreme Court ruling about a redistricting map, um, about, about a gerrymandered map. I think the issue is going to come up more precisely when it comes to the actual voting process. mm mm-hmm. And I guess that's because once a state Supreme Court has said, look, this map violates our state constitution that goes beyond the federal constitution, uh, it's it's a pretty bold assertion of power for the U.S. Supreme Court to do that. Again, not suggesting that these justices are afraid of doing so, <laughs> yes, but I, I think it's just a little more explicit <laughs> yeah. than than you might do in another setting. And the other thing you'd have to do is you'd have to explicitly overturn that 2015 decision from Arizona involving its independent, uh, independent redistricting commission. Again, again, I'm not suggesting the conservative justices are unwilling to overturn precedent, but <laughs> having invoking this doctrine in a case not involving redistricting would not call that precedent as clearly into question. And so someone like Robert, who interestingly did not join the other justices, even though he had espoused his view in 2015, he did not join these justices in the 2020 litigation. I just think that might give him a little bit of pause.
0: And you realize, uh, uh, Josh Douglas, I hope you are right, and that my concerns are are for naught here, although I think when that uh, decision in Arizona, wasn't that uh, before Amy Coney Barrett was on the court?
1: Well, yes, and we have no clue what she thinks of this uh, doctrine. They could have five votes without Robert.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm, again, that's what I'm worried about. Now, as you note, uh, this is uh, not only a Republican matter. There are uh, a few cases... Uh, In states with Democratic control, like Illinois, where maps are being redrawn that result in fewer Republican majority districts, which, frankly, you know, had you asked me a decade ago, I would have been equally bothered by that happening, even in uh, Democratic uh, states. But I got to tell you, Josh, frankly, given what is now at stake which I think is democracy itself as I see it. Even though I I now hate holding this position, it pains me a great deal. It took me a long while to get here. But frankly, I believe that if Congress is unable to adopt a law that would ban partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, as I believe it, it should be banned, you know, as the Freedom to Vote Act does, That democratically controlled states for the good of democracy itself, they should not unilaterally uh, disarm here, but they ought to partisan gerrymander the hell out of those blue states. Why am I wrong, Joshua Douglas?
1: I think you're wrong because that would surely lead to the end of democracy as we know it. Now, we may already be getting there. But it's sort of like a two wrongs don't make a right mm-hmm. kind of situation, um, and I think there are better solutions that don't lead to uh, a complete devolvement of democratic representation. Because you, like know, then you lose the moral <laughs> ground of saying, you're, you know, this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. So I think you need to push, I, I would be much more comfortable getting rid of the filibuster mm-hmm. and and passing Reform in Congress might be, you know, obviously much more comfortable, as we've discussed, with state state courts striking down maps. Uh But once you get to a situation where you're just as bad as the other Uh side— Then we don't have a we don't have a, a democracy any longer. Again, you make you you your argument in response to you. Well, we're already there. I'm just not Kinda. convinced that
0: we're quite there yet. Yeah, well, I, I listen and and I hear you, and uh, that's why I say I would you know in lieu of reforming the filibuster to allow freedom to vote, uh, it, I would much rather see that happen. It's starting to seem like it's not going to happen. And let me quote this guy over at CNN over this weekend who said, "quote We must treat the 2022 election as existential." For the continued vitality of our democracy. That guy at CNN was some guy named Joshua A. Douglas from the University of Kentucky. So if we must treat 2022 as existential for the continued vitality of our democracy, Josh, shouldn't. Democrats not unilaterally disarm and try to, you know, do what they can to end up with as democratic, small-D democratic uh, uh, representation in Congress as possible before we get to the 2024 election, which is what you are writing about at CNN when you say the uh, attacks, the attempts to steal that election are already underway.
1: Yeah, that guy sounds kind of smart, doesn't he? A little. Um,
0: Yeah, we should listen uh, to him.
1: But my point here is that yes, the 2022 elections are existential uh, for issues in terms of who's going to run our elections, our election administrators. We're Mm going to be electing secretaries of state, and uh, in terms of voting out those people who are anti-democracy. And so, while gerrymandered maps make it very, you know, a lot harder to Mm -hmm. to vote these people out, a huge Democratic swell, small D Democratic uh, swell you know, can overcome a gerrymandered map. I and mean, that's that's basically why the House is in Democratic hands right now, right? And so...
0: Barely, uh, the, barely, the, yeah. Five the, votes, but, yeah.
1: But the point is that I think it's better to win this fight at the ballot box, even when you have to overcome the, you know, huge barriers uh-huh. that one side has placed, than to, you know, basically blow up the whole thing. Because once you start gerrymandering uh, your own side, where does it end? Right? and it ends yeah. in situations like January sixth, and that's not a good place
0: to be. No, it's not. And yes, that would be better, but boy, is that a risky way to go. And uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, if if, if blue states gerrymandered as ruthlessly as some of these red states are now doing. I mean, we mentioned, you know, there's a couple who are doing similar things, but not in the same way. You know, wouldn't that perhaps trigger the Supreme Court to get back into this game and to start regulating it if uh, Democrats played the same type of hardball that Republicans are playing?
1: Well, they already were faced with that in that 2019 case. That that 2019 case was crafted perfectly by the litigants. They had one case out of North Carolina mm-hmm. where the Republicans engaged in a, an egregious gerrymander. You had a case out of Maryland where the Democrats had engaged in an egregious gerrymander. The North Carolina case involved the entire map, the entire state. Right. The Maryland case involved one, one district, s- which,
0: district. It was not right, so as they, egregious.
1: Well, but what the the point the, the, the point of that strategy was to give the court every possible... Avenue. So, if you want to go with a state map, you can look at the North Carolina. If you only, if you want to say these claims are limited to when there's one egregious district, you've got the Maryland case to do it. And the court threw up its hands and did nothing. So, I, I am not convinced of that egregious gerrymanders by the Democrats would would convince these justices to think any differently. I mean, they're they were already faced with that situation okay. and said no dice.
0: I, well, and I'm not, and again, I'm not sure that, that those uh, cases, Maryland versus North Carolina, were were equal at all. One district uh, that was gamed in Maryland versus the entire state of of North Carolina, and you know, I saw. I mean, you may have seen this map as well that somebody had uh, posted to the internet of of how you could redistrict Illinois. Did you happen to see that map where every single district in the state was drawn as a part of Chicago, essentially, which would have guaranteed you know every single uh, district in in Illinois would end up blue boy i'll tell you if democrats did something like that i suspect republicans would suddenly be up in arms about partisan gerrymandering no
1: well i mean i don't know if the republicans can still gerrymander enough states to uh, control the house representatives maybe they wouldn't care as much i mean they're already up in arms about uh, what they claim to be gerrymanders in Illinois and in places like Oregon. So, uh, I, again, I, I don't think that the Republicans are going to suddenly wake up and say, "Oh, this is bad. We shouldn't do it," just because the Democrats are doing it just as egregiously in, in other places. I, I just don't see how that, uh, that that gets to any better place um, than the solutions that can try to uh, lead to disarmament. Well, Uh, yeah, I just, I don't, I just don't think you, yeah. If everyone brings a bigger gun to the gunfight, what's left?
0: Well, you know, again, as I said, I don't like my own solution. I hate it. In fact. Um, but I'm really concerned. I'm not sure there is any other solution at this point. Yes, we need to, you know, try to get, reform the filibuster. Yes, as you write uh, smartly at Politico, you know, cases need to be brought in state court. But I guess I'm an advocate here, at least for all of the above, at least based on that guy who wrote at CNN, who ends the piece saying American democracy barely survived 2020. The attacks on 2024 are already underway. Whether they succeed will depend. On what we do right now, that guy's doesn't, smart.
1: Doesn't a, 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 a further democratic gerrymander continue the attacks on democracy? Right, if the point is to is to, to combat the attacks on fair representation, mm-hmm. then one side doing it because the other side is doing it doesn't lead to any better. Theories of representation, and what about those people in Illinois who don 't have a fair district to yeah. vote in, and so they 're not represented as well? I think you know it, it, to look at this through not through a partisan lens but through a lens that's that 's about fair representation, you know those people are going to be just as harmed as the people in North Carolina, and of course, you know North Carolina mm-hmm. has racial issues as well in terms of the 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 racial gerrymander of the map but but i just i 'm not convinced that. Democrats gerrymandering the heck out of Illinois is is the solution to stop the attacks on American democracy.
0: And I I agree with you. I don't like those uh, people who are losing their representation in Illinois. But uh, if you look at the state as a whole, that state as a whole is going to lose its representation in the U.S. House and potentially lose the White House along with it because of that representation in the U.S. House if they don't game their maps in that way. I completely understand what you're saying. And, and, but, but, you know, do, yeah. don't,
1: don't we need a two-party system to have yeah. a, a
0: fair democracy? I
1: think the Illinois Democrats were short-sighted in gerrymandering Adam Kinzinger's district away so that he can't really run again successfully. Mm-hmm. You need Republicans who are going to be fair-minded and promote democracy. Agreed. And the Illinois Democrats... I think uh, you know we're we're uh, short-sighted in trying to gain power and an additional democratic seat as opposed to protecting his district, and it's those sorts of things that that I think concern me on on the other side as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, and 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 I agree, and yes, we do need those two parties, but I don't see us getting it. We need more than two parties, frankly, but I don't see us getting that two parties. I see us working in the other direction, and you know, it might suddenly uh, help find. 10 Republicans in the Senate who are willing to vote for the Freedom to Vote Act if they realize that Democrats are doing the exact same thing that Republicans are doing to Democrats in those red states. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's a worthy uh, debate, one that I never thought I would actually be having. And I'm delighted to have it with you, Josh, and we will probably continue to do so uh, in the days ahead. Joshua A. Douglas, uh, you can find his piece at Politico on why gerrymandering needs to land in state courts and his really Really smart piece over at CNN on the attacks on the 2024 election are already underway. That's at CNN.com. You can find him, uh, all of his work at joshuaadouglas.com. And you can find him on the Twitters at joshuaadouglas. Uh, oh, and by the way, yes, just in time for Christmas, uh, his book, Vote for Us How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Josh, always great to have you on the show, sir, and uh, I look forward to the next time.
1: Great, thanks so much.
0: Okay, we've got to get out. Uh, Good speaking with Josh there. I
1: know, a lot to think about.
0: Yeah, and hopefully he'll think about it, add a new chapter to that book (laughs) uh, in the upcoming uh, version. Anyway, that's it. Got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you who spent a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and neighbors. Uh, if you'd like to touch base with me on the debate that Joshua and I were having, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Also, we are on your public airwaves to have these debates only thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. On the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.